Jonathan Cho is a Discovery Institute senior fellow and a journalist based in Seattle where he covers homelessness, crimes, and other issues. We talked through a range of issues related to Seattle and journalism in general, the end of an era, and the future of the industry. Enjoy. Che, so Korean, you ever been back to Korea? I've literally been there once in my life. D- did you like it? <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. It was before the boom. So it was like late 90s. So Oh, so it wasn't like the new, like now it's like the future. It's crazy, man. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, it's funny. My wife and kids have been there like five times already <laughs> in my they, 14 years of marriage. But Are they Korean? Yeah, they're Korean-American. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So she goes back a lot. Wow. She, she goes back because she has family there. And we just, in, my summers are busy as well. And we, we obviously take family trips, but I just haven't been able to go. She's taken the, my kids when they were babies and just multiple. when they've gone, they're going to go again probably sometime this summer. I might, I might connect with them but I, i've seen yeah, um, i've seen the photos are you trying to have them uh, grow up speaking the language um you know it's really funny i gave up on that but <laughs> now uh my kids want to learn because it's so in vogue so right. you know now they're actually taking korean classes on the weekends i'm just paying for it so that's cool i'm not pushing them at all in fact my korean's horrible i can't even <laughs> read or write i can understand but i can't read or write i'm like 90 percent understanding but speaking's like speak like a third grader according to my wife <laughs> i was there for uh six years so i definitely it's one of the it's one of the countries that is probably closest to my heart just because i spent more time there there's like three countries maybe that I, you know that i've spent so much time in uh korea ended up being one of them and i didn't even really plan it that way but very beautiful place so it's it's one of those uh what's the what's the term for it um oh god I always forget the term there's a there's a term for a country where you basically have uh it's basically one city and the whole country is basically that city and then everything else like the United States is not one of those because you've got New York you got LA you got you know Chicago but I would argue that Korea it's like there's Seoul and then there's not Seoul and Busan is kind of cool but it's really sort of a soul, not soul situation. And soul is just, for me, that's like the top. That's amazing. Anyway. I'll take your word for it, man. I hear it's amazing too. It's just, <laughs> obviously, they're pros and cons. The con yeah. being it's like the plastic surgery capital of the world now. So, Oh, yeah. Uh, guys important. and girls. Yeah, it's, I was, yeah I, I guess you're right. My, my daughter talking about that, she, she doesn't want plastic surgery, but I'm afraid she might go down that road, you know, just because oh, yeah. of the culture, just so much influence and sway. So, All right. Well, let me see. Um, you're a New England native, Boston University Journalism School grad, and you worked at Como TV, top rated station in Seattle. Your beat was homelessness, right? Yeah, I did. I covered crime and homelessness. Crime and homelessness. Yeah. I was watching video of your coverage of homelessness in Seattle. I was struck by some of the vulnerability that you captured in people. And also, I think the evident concern that you feel for these people, it really comes through in those videos. And some of them are quite powerful. I was watching one or two uh, just this morning, and it's really harrowing to see the conditions that these people are in. Uh, And we'll talk about the homelessness issue in a minute. And then you left or were benched, I guess, because you covered a, a Proud Boys rally or march or something of that nature. And then people accused you of being a, of being like a member or being a Nazi or something of this nature. Yeah, I mean, they accused me of uh, promoting the Proud Boys. Oh, like because, because you platformed them because you correct. Put it on I mean, the look, I, I, you know, I, I've read, I read. Yeah, first of all, thanks for reaching out. I and I read. A lot of your stuff, especially your, uh, I think you had a blog post after the Seattle Times fiasco. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really could relate because that's sort of kind of what happened to me at Como, uh, where the station bends and caves to the pressure from far left activists and these nut jobs, the fringe extremists, radical militants on the left. Uh, when in reality, you know, my motive for covering this was to show a group and a culture that rarely ever gets coverage in mainstream media. Look, uh, you know, I arrived in Seattle in 2020 from Boston, Massachusetts, at the height of COVID, you know, George Floyd, BLM riots and everything else. And um, I would cover these Antifa, you know, (laughs) protests and riots, 100 straight days, you know, destroying Capitol Hill and the East Precinct. And we wouldn't bat an eye. but when it comes to the Proud Boys, it just felt like the third rail. And obviously, as a journalist, I'm like, that's exactly the story we need to go after. Why aren't we finding out 
who these people really are. What's motivating them? Are you know why are they seen as far right, white nationalists or extremists? Let's get to know them. So I went to cover this rally, you know, on my own free time on a Saturday, and I want to be very clear: none of the coverage which I recorded all on my iPhone, even made it on air on Como TV. But as you know, the power of social media, you know, the very next day, it created a firestorm. And in fact, I mean, there, we can talk about, you know, more of this later, but it really gave an opening to a lot of my critics and enemies. Because in the two plus years that I was at Como, uh, you know, I, I really went after narratives that disrupted and undercut the overarching, you know, stories and and the reasons for homelessness for example you'll always hear from a lot of left-leaning or liberal media sources uh that homelessness is an affordable housing crisis well i was reporting it's not just an affordable housing crisis the root causes are mental illness drug addiction and broken relationships and those are very difficult and that kind of i think went after and, and disrupted the current narrative and uh, people didn't like that they you know i appreciate what you said about uh, my videos and some of my coverage, how it shows, you know, what I really feel about, you know, the homeless crisis and the solutions I want to find. And hopefully the policymakers will be influenced to bring those. But, you know, I've been accused of, uh, you know, of poverty porn. You know, that's a favorite here. That's the first time I heard that phrase uh, being in Seattle. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm here to show the raw realities, because if you ignore this stuff, it'll never get fixed. And the policymakers and the elected officials can say, hey, look, everything's fine. Everything's great. But, you know, I really see the power of video. That's why everything I do is now video first, right? I come from a television background, but as we know, with social media platforms and easy access now to iPhones and, and so on and so forth, the video don't lie, as I like to always say. And that's really been holding public officials accountable because they can no longer say everything's fine at Third and Pike. Everything's fine in downtown Seattle. Everything's fine in Ballard. So that's sort of where you know, my work lies and, and where my focus is now. Were you not nominated for four Emmy Awards for the very work that got you fired? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, last year I was nominated for four Emmys. Um, I, it's funny, uh, the Emmy deadline is today, so I'll be submitting a few more of my entries. Uh, but, you know, yeah, at the end of the day, who cares what these nut jobs say, right? I don't really care. Um, you know, and, and when you get nominated for an Emmy, which is a uh, you know, industry award in the TV business and, and broadcast, and now digital, um, it, it really does uh, matter when your peers, you know, judge your work. So uh, it, it's always cool to get, you know, a nomination and, and win. And now you are at Discovery Institute. Yeah, I'm a senior fellow there and a journalist. And um, <laughs> when I, when I uh, got fired from Como, uh, you know, I was actually getting ready to leave Seattle because I'm not from here. I'm a Boston kid. I'm an East Coast kid. And I was kind of on this trajectory to go down the network path, network television, and all the big, you know, networks are in New York. So I was getting ready to kind of position myself for that. But then, you know, Steve Burei, the president at Discovery Institute, it's this Seattle-based think tank known for intelligent design, had a program at the time, still does, uh, you know, focused uh, on homelessness, uh, and it's called the Center on Wealth and Poverty. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he basically came up to me and said, hey, look, um, I don't know where you stand right now, but we would love to bring you on so you can continue your work because right now no one else is doing it. Um, so, you know, at that point, I, I, I'm this guy who barely got out of college. I'm not an academic. I thought it would all be about doing white papers and, you know, <laughs> deep dive research analysis. And there's a part of that involved in my work. But again, uh, I have a lot of uh, leeway to really focus again on these video stories and to, you know, continue what I've been doing for all these years, 20 plus years in corporate journalism. Now I'm down the independent path. So let's talk crime, the crime in Seattle. It's an interesting conversation. The violent crime rate for the city of Seattle reach, has reached a 15 year high. Property crime is up. Uh, I was looking this morning, surprised to find that uh, in um, recent FBI data, uh, the city of Vancouver, Washington is the fifth highest rape rate in the entire country. The others, the others being New Orleans, Anchorage, Cleveland, and Minneapolis in order. What are your thoughts on the situation regarding crime in Seattle? Um, yeah, it really depends who you ask. But uh, the folks that I talk to are the actual law enforcement, you know, agencies and the officers and the sheriff's deputies. Um, and they all say they're, they're these these law enforcement agencies are still reeling from the failed social experiment, uh, you know, called defund the police. 
Uh, and that's really demoralized a lot of uh, police departments. People don't want to be cops anymore. You know, Seattle's still down 600 plus officers. Um, so a lot of that has contributed to this uh, crime culture. Uh, you know, not helping is the fact that, you know, the criminals at the end of the day, they, they, they watch the news stories and that word gets around on the street that they're not prosecuting. You know, there's catch and release happening all the time. And you look at our lawmakers in Washington state and they're pushing these soft on crime policies. Um, you know, it's this cocktail for, for crime that, and it's just erupting on our streets. I mean, I think we hit an all time high last year in 2023, right? Uh, all time high in homicides the city of Seattle. I mean, since like the mid late nineties, I mean, that's crazy. How did we get to this point? I mean, it's just like Seattle is just, just continues to boggle my mind. It's like this crazy juxtaposition, right? You've got extreme wealth, but extreme poverty and now problems like, you know, the crime epidemic. It's almost like it's been open season. I feel like for the past three years, uh, just with everything that's happened, you know, COVID, the, the insane protests to fund the police. Um, so there's a lot of healing and recovery to do right now, but I mean, that's just kind of in a nutshell, what I've seen, if you were to ask me for a quick snapshot on what's happening with mm. crimes. Well, let me ask you if this, you obviously know the, the, the situation in Seattle far better than I do, but I did recently, um, report, research and report on the situation in Oakland. And I wrote about, um, Seneca Scott for the free press. And while I was there, I spoke to a few different people, politicians, activists, and what have you on both sides of the issue. And what I found was that you have this interesting phenomenon. And I want to ask you if you think that this is reflective of what's happening in Seattle as well. I suspect it's probably what's happening in many cities in America. But what I saw in Oakland was uh, it's a valley and up on the hilltops is where you have the more expensive real estate. And they have this expression in Oakland, crime don't climb, because if you live up on the hills, then it's much safer. It's often much whiter. And these activists tend to come from those parts of the city and they come down into the valley and they protest and they say, we don't want police, abolish the police and all of this. Meanwhile, if you go into the neighborhoods where you have black and brown communities and you ask them what they think about the issue, they very much want police. The people who are most directly affected by crime actually want to have more police. And the predominantly white middle to upper middle class or upper class activists who will never be affected by the reduction of the size of the police force. They're the ones who are coming down saying, yeah, get rid of the police. And we're doing this in the name of black and brown people. That's why we're doing this. And the whole thing is just, it's just a farce, a farce with very serious consequences. The crime, some of the stories of crime in Oakland are just out of this world. People shoplifting with forklifts going like smashing through the front of a store and just loading up a forklift, which they stole from a construction site and doing this several days in a row because the police don't show up. And in fact, Oakland is on the verge now of losing funding for its 911 emergency service. I've never even heard of such a thing. So this um, this hypocrisy of these predominantly white elite uh, activists pretending to stand stand for minorities and saying abolish the police is that a pattern that also holds in Seattle 100% and mm. that uh, pretty much you know David what you described sums up what's also happening uh here in Seattle as well you go into these predominantly black communities you know south seattle central district um in and you you ask people and and their biggest gripe isn't you know, police brutality, it's, there aren't enough police officers uh, patrolling the streets. And uh, these are neighborhoods and communities that have seen a disproportionate amount of crime. And, uh, you know, for example, in, in the Beacon Hill neighborhood in Seattle, it's it's this amazing intersection of, of different cultures. And for years, it's been, you know, the black community, you know, an Asian community as well, living side by side, working side by side. But uh, another wrinkle in all of this that sort of complicated matters, especially when it comes to race relations as well, is the black on Asian violence. We saw, you know, the rise of Asian hate during COVID. Well, and, and you talk about minority communities and, you know, I think the Asian American community and the black community as well 
they've been asking, where are the cops? We need more cops. And yet you have these white, far-left, virtue-signaling activists going out there, you know, pushing their fringe data points, saying, get rid of the cops. And again, that's really added to the frustration on the ground, and I believe uh, more crime on the streets. And I think this has really been, I think, the last three, three, four years here in Seattle, a wake-up call for these communities as well. The Asian American community, the black community, they, they didn't think that, they didn't get involved, right? And they just kind of sat on the sidelines. And, you know, this fringe group emerged of the, the minority group of voices that have always been the loudest here in the city. Uh, and they've influenced, clearly, public policy. You know, the city council, there's a lot of hope, though, because there's a new city council. But the one prior with Lisa Herbold, Shama Sawant, Teresa Mosqueda, uh, Andrew Lewis. I mean, you basically had progressive and, and an, progressives and an activist council that essentially, you know, allowed this. And uh, I want to remind your audience here in Seattle during the height of BLM, the vast majority of the last city council pledged to defund the police. So when you're in your city council, the people who are supposed to represent you are, are saying this publicly. I mean, think about what that does, not only to the police department, but to the community. But there's a lot of damage that's been done. So, you know, I don't think this is going to be fixed overnight uh, here in Seattle. I think it's going to take years to bring it back to a normal situation, a safe situation right now. Because again, you don't always hear it on mainstream media as well, but and especially in the Seattle Times, but man, there are so many crimes happening uh, where Asian Americans are, are now being targeted in these communities as well by kids who are now going on rampages. So There's a lot of talk in Seattle about revitalizing the downtown area. When I was on the board of the Seattle Times, we met with Mayor Bruce Harrell and he went over his plan how he's going to bring people back downtown. And there's always a lot of talk about getting people back downtown, getting businesses revitalized. And I mean, I was living downtown. I I just, I thought it would be a good, it would be good for the new board member to be living in the city as opposed to writing about it and sort of like living out in the suburbs. So, and every day I would take a walk and I would take a look around to see, always thinking in my mind, does this feel safe? Am I seeing a lot of homeless? Like, just what does it feel like walking around? Does it feel like a place that people would want to come back to? And it's kind of hit or miss, as I'm sure you know better than anyone, that, you know, you go one street, looks great, next street over, it's it's an, it's a full encampment. It was only there a short period. So I don't have the, the perspective of seeing this evolve over years. But there's definitely parts of the city downtown where I could, I mean, if, you know, you're thinking about parents with kids and things like this, that it would scare people off, that you wouldn't want to walk down some streets even in the middle of the day. As you said, I think there's certain conversations that you're not supposed to have about what's causing this or, or even that it is the case, which I find discouraging. But like you said, I think it is going to take a long time to get back on track. But what do you think about the downtown area and the revitalization effort? Do you think that it's moving in the right direction, successful, things are good and people should come back? Well, um, <laughs> I guess it really depends on your pension for risk. Uh, you know, David, uh, you know, I like to say that it really is now a, a, like a tale of two cities. Like you perfectly described, you have the area around Pike Place Market hustling and bustling tourists packing the small mom and pop shops you walk down a block to third and pike near the ross store and it's like a war zone you have people passed out on fentanyl you know using drugs and in, in front of cops the black market of stolen goods being sold on the streets then the addicts jumping back on the buses king county metro buses going to target walmart stealing bringing it back so it's like this crazy ecosystem of crime and drug addiction and uh, what's such a shame is that some of the mainstream media outlets, as well as a lot of these activists, have always said that this is homelessness. But it's not just homelessness. This is a drug addiction crisis. This, uh, this city, this generation has never seen a drug like fentanyl. This is the, the worst drug in, in my lifetime, uh, hitting America's streets. And you have drug, not only drug addicts, you have drug dealers now targeting these specific spots in downtown Seattle because it's been neglected for so long. And uh, I have yet to see Governor Jay Inslee walk the hot spots in downtown Seattle. And mm -hmm. I think that's pretty telling. He holds press conferences. He has a pretty sophisticated media team. But I've yet to see Governor Jay Inslee come down and actually walk the streets of downtown Seattle. So when your leaders don't come down 
and actually show that it's safe, why would I want to come back and 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 shop in downtown Seattle? So it isn't until Dow Constantine, Mayor Bruce Harrell, Governor Inslee, all three of them, all they have to do is hold a press conference and say, "Hey, everything's great," you know, or have a a press event where they're they're bringing their own family members. But I've yet to see Governor Inslee, King County Executive Dow Constantine, and Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell come down with their own families. I think ultimately that will be the test mm. of whether or not it's safe to come back. Mm, good point. Going back to what you said earlier about members of the city council, there's there certainly is people sometimes ask me, you know, oh, you moved out to Seattle. Is it is it as wild as its reputation suggests with regard to unhinged far left uh, political discourse and behavior? And it's funny because when I first moved out here, I think the first the first scandalous story that I saw, and it happened very early when I got here, was when the King County Regional Homeless Authority had asked a continuum of care board member, um, what was it? There was, they wanted to, uh, they nominated a sex offender to the board and another board member said, wait a minute, this guy's a sex offender and actually he's also touched me inappropriately. I don't want him on the board. And the response from the person nominating him was, uh, well, sex offenders are a are a vulnerable group that re- that receive a lot of like uh, oppression and and how dare you out him and blah 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 and it was this whole it was like the most extreme stereotype of leftist thinking that if you had told it to me I would have said come on that's not real you're making this up but I came to learn that it's actually not only real but indicative of a certain subgroup of a political activism uh, in Seattle and beyond. That is really frightening, and it's particularly frightening when they actually gain some modicum of power uh, on the city council or elsewhere. It's and you, and you and we are witnessing the effect of that of those those type that type of thinking that type of um, extreme leftism. I think, which is something that I think we could talk about later with regard to uh, maybe some of the more recent protests and the extreme leftist element in that, but. Um, Turning to homelessness, uh, Seattle ranks third, I believe, after New York and Los Angeles for homelessness in absolute terms. And one interesting thing that I noticed was, according to data from Brookings, New York's homelessness, that's 90% shelters. Philly, it's like over 60% sheltered. Seattle, it's more, it's like around 30%, overwhelmingly unsheltered homeless. And, you know, winter months, freezing temperatures, it's a very brutal problem. What do you ascribe the this to? There's a lot of talk on the right that that this is well, this is a blue problem, blue cities. This is what's happening. Although I'm a little suspect of that, simply because most cities are blue. Period. I mean, it's you know, cities tend to be blue. Rural regions tend to be red. Uh, out of the top twenty major cities in America, only three of them are red. I believe Dallas, Fort Worth being two of them. Both in Texas, so. I just think that's oversimplifying the problem a little bit. I'd love to hear what you think about the issue of homelessness being a specialist in the area and what you think some of the causes and and also what some of the potential solutions, even if you think that realistically, given the political landscape as such as it is, we may not actually be pursuing those solutions, but I'd love to hear what you think they actually are if you were, I don't know, you know, king for a day. Well, we can spend multiple podcasts on this topic. And in fact, at Discovery Institute, we are starting our own podcast this year as well to further go in depth and talk about these these issues. But David, from one fellow journo to another, I think part of the reason why uh, you know homelessness has gotten so bad in a city like Seattle is due to the failed public policies uh, that lawmakers and elected officials and policymakers have subscribed to. Um, and it's one of the reasons right now that's just not working is something called housing first. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a federal policy that basically says that in order to solve homelessness, we have to build more apartments and studios and just give housing away to people. The problem with that is it sounds great on the surface. Why not put every homeless person into an apartment and studio and stabilize them so they can deal with their addiction or mental illness or other problems. Well, there are no requirements, and that's the key. It's no strings attached. All it is is asking for more taxpayer dollars to build more housing. 
and all those problems that led men and women onto the streets end up behind closed doors. And that's one of the most, uh, I, I would go as far to say sinister, plays right now with Housing First because you have all of these executives at these nonprofits running Housing First programs making 250 k yet they're not being held accountable for actual results. If you actually look into these Housing First situations, the metric for success isn't how many people do you get back into society. The metric for success is how many people can you get indoors. And that's the key right there. The It's not about necessarily helping people take another step, getting back into you know the workforce or getting them linked up with families. It's just getting them indoors. And if that's the only metric, then the current rate of homelessness is not going to be solved, at least in our lifetime. So unless we deal with the root causes like mental illness, drug addiction, and broken relationships, really asking people why they ended up on the streets, uh, this isn't going to be solved. Uh, so that's why I believe it's not a money issue. There's so much money out there. It's a reallocation issue. It's putting the money into more beds to deal with drug addiction, mental illness, and having interventions and requirements. And that is the far-left activist thinking that has really infiltrated and infected the homeless industrial complex, as like I like to call, that continues to fuel this. Um, look, Housing First was introduced about a decade ago um, at the federal level, and former President Barack Obama said homelessness would be solved within a decade. Well, it's now more than 10 years later, and homelessness in America last year up 12%, more than 650,000 people, including veterans, women, and children. It's not getting better. If Housing First was working, David, I'd say let's double down, let's triple down, but it's not. So why are we following this policy? Which then leads to my next point. This has be one of the reasons why this isn't getting enough focus and coverage or, you know, proper solutions is that we are in an information war. There's been only one side to this narrative. And when mainstream media like the NPRs or the NBCs, the ABCs of the world, Seattle Times, New York Times, covers this story, listen very carefully. It's only one side. They only parrot the activist talking points that we need more affordable housing. I mean, of course we need more affordable housing. But that's not the solution to solve homelessness. Yeah. And that's the most frustrating piece as a journalist. At the very least, start exploring the other side. Start looking at, you know, what is causing this problem. Instead, they think we need more money. We need more housing. And guess what? The politicians, the elected officials, they still read mainstream media and they're being influenced by that. I think this is especially true with regard to Seattle, although when you look at other cities, Chicago, New York, Philly, you do see that as rent goes up, homelessness tracks with that. But there are other factors there, to your point. It's not just a matter of affordable housing. But then you turn the page and look at Seattle, which is the exception, because since 2019, inflation-adjusted asking rent per unit has been going down and homelessness has been shooting up. So you don't even you can't even make that case as being a, a part of the problem. It seems to not, it just doesn't make sense at all. And I I saw a compilation video. I don't know if it was one that you had put together, but I remember seeing a compilation video recently to another thing that you said where in which it was just a series of interviews. How did you become homeless? And so many of the men responded that it was to some degree they had gotten a divorce or they'd gotten broken up and it caused a depression and their life spun sideways and then they were homeless. And again and again, you heard these men tell stories of breakups. It's, I was, I, honestly, I was just ignorant of what a factor this is, actually. Right, David, look, uh, we're, again, I'm speaking from a television standpoint. I, you know, I want to credit Como when I was there for even focusing on this beat. You know, we were the only station in Seattle to focus on this um, because this is not a, a happy topic. This is not what you call brand safe. In other words, you can't sell diaper ads next to somebody overdosing on fentanyl. But when I was there, this thought crossed my mind. Imagine if every single news outlet, not only in Seattle, but across the country, focused on homelessness and drug addiction. What that would do to hold public officials accountable and to show how bad this crisis really is and how deadly fentanyl 
is again that I, that is really fueling this. Um, but that's just not happening for just the aforementioned reason I laid out. When I, I, without mentioning colleagues' names, not only at Como but other stations, people would say to me, and they still say to me, "Cho, we can't believe you cover this. To see this this urban decay, this." destruction you know people literally dying on the streets how do you see this every single day and i have got to be honest with you david i've been sort of desensitized to this now but what keeps me going is the fact that not enough people are covering this and we need to see more of this before things actually start to change until our policy makers start to wake up and say this just isn't working so you know to the i i don't just show Again, the devastating videos for the sake of showing these devastating videos. Again, I do it to show that these are Americans. These are people's mothers, fathers, sisters, daughters, sons living on our streets. This is not compassion. So when these far left activists, groups like Stop the Sweep Seattle say, leave people in encampments until we can build more apartments and studios, that just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And if that's their definition of compassion, I, I mean, I don't subscribe to that. That that just doesn't make any sense as a human being. Uh, what I do believe in is intervention. What I do believe in is people, average citizens now in Seattle, having to be caseworkers, you know, and do welfare checks and to walk with these people. And I think that's part of, you know, society's problem right now, right? That we don't even stop to have a conversation with a homeless person or get to know their story. And I think that goes such a long way. And then that's, you know, part of the privilege and responsibility of my job is not just to show the videos, but to actually stop and talk to them. And like you said, David, man, there is no one size fits all. You've got such a wide spectrum when it comes to the homeless crisis. You've got the single mom who may have just lost a job, rent goes up, you know, 500 bucks. Next thing you know, she's living in a shelter. Someone like that could actually probably use something like housing first, where they get into an apartment until they get stabilized, because they're not addicted to drugs. You know, they're not dealing with mental illness. Okay, but then you've got the other extreme, you, what I call now a nomad class. You know, Seattle has a nickname, Freeattle, for a reason, because you've got a class of homeless people now who no longer want to go back into society. I have dozens of interviews I've done in the past few years of people saying, uh, hey, man, why would I want to work again? Why would I want to pay rent and taxes when I can just park my RV in Soto and have access to three food pantries? The, the These volunteers come by with free food. I can get to the methadone clinic right down the street. Why leave when I can just live free I've and I know that. I'm going to be enabled? So policymakers really need to make that distinction and understand there is no one size fits all. And we can't have policies that are just one size fits all either. Yeah. I, I see these, I've seen those videos where they say they don't want to leave. I also have seen the encampments and I see women, children. I, I read the statistics about the rates of rape in these camps. I see veterans. My father was a veteran. I mean, it boils my blood to see veterans out there scraping by who, who, who don't want to be in that situation. They're not the, they're not the nomad class. They, they want to get out of it. And it just feels as if their own society has thrown them to the wayside. And it just makes you so angry when you see something like that. And then you see people saying, then you see liberals in the name of compassion, almost condoning or even engendering such behavior. And a major factor of all of this, as you said, being drug use. When I was in Oakland and I did that piece on Seneca Scott, one of the things that he said to me that I found quite insightful was he said, this isn't a drug problem. This is a chemical weapon. That's how you have to think about it because fentanyl is so – the cycle of use and come down and use is so much faster that you're using it so much more that from your first use to your overdose is such a shorter window than if you were on heroin or cocaine or anything else. It's like nothing we've ever seen. It's, you really should be thinking about this more like a chemical weapon that's been unleashed on the population and we're, we're just kind of treating it like, like, it's, uh, like it's the crack epidemic and we have the wrong frame. Yeah, and 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 to that point, I I don't think we should just be focusing on the addicts either. I think we need to be looking at the source. Where is this all coming from? The the cartels coming through the porous borders, and all then the precursors, the ingredients coming from China. Brookings Institute did a a, a great piece last year 
pointing out the flow of fentanyl ingredients. You look, China's, you know, in my opinion, waging a reverse opium war. They're destroying an entire generation here in America without firing a single bullet. Yet that narrative is not discussed or talked about more in the mainstream media for various reasons. But China right now has the power and ability to cut off the flow of fentanyl precursors and ingredients if they wanted to. Look what they did with COVID. They shut down an entire country, you know, with mm. all those people. So if they wanted to shut down the flow of fentanyl ingredients, they could do it right now. But it's not happening. And that's, that's got to be talked about and spotlighted more often. Very much so. Uh, another aspect of the of the drug addiction issue is just the um, I think the misguided. What do I want to call it? The the sort of misguided. I, well, I suppose it's misguided compassion. But I remember listening to a Seattle based radio program, Seattle Nice, and they uh, and one individual was saying the question was whether or not police should have the ability to arrest people publicly using drugs. And so imagine, for instance, that you have a drug user smoking fentanyl on a bus and you have a pregnant woman on the same bus. And now a police officer, although he, let's just say that the police officer has that leftist compassion for the drug user and doesn't want to infringe upon their rights. But now you have to make a decision between whose rights are being infringed upon. And one of the people on the show said that they should not. Uh, arrest the fentanyl user <laughs> that that the pregnant woman, I suppose, should, although they didn't explicitly say this, that the pregnant woman should maybe be the one that is inconvenienced, although inconvenience doesn't really seem like the right word here. And it, it just, I just couldn't even believe what I was hearing. This, this isn't even compassion at this point. I mean, it's almost malicious. I know I've spoken to, I, I know what some police officers think about this, obviously. They're not very happy about it, but their hands are tied. They can only do what they can do. So with regard to the, the the correct policy approach to the drug issue in Seattle, where do you think that we've gone wrong and what do you think is the next correct step? Well, you know, drug possession and drug use at, at one point, just actually a few years ago in Washington State was a felony, but then just, you know, then got turned into a misdemeanor and, and it became a free-for-all. And, and now they're trying to reverse course. And now you can actually be arrested and, and the cops are starting to enforce on the streets. But like I said, it, it, it's going to take years to turn this around. And there just aren't enough officers right now. When you have a culture bedded on the streets where, you know, the addicts, the dealers uh, know that they're going to be able to get away with it the majority of the time. It, I, I don't know how you how you stop that until. Uh, you really start making arrests and, and prosecuting. Look, I don't think every single drug addict out on the street should be arrested and thrown into jail or prison. But I do believe some, and, and many have told me, the ones I've interviewed, that jail is what saved their lives because it got them sober. It got them out of that environment. But when you have these far-left activists and cop haters saying, we need to get rid of the jails and we need to get rid of the cops, Who's going to intervene? And that's a question I always have for these activist types. What are you doing about it? Aside from being a keyboard warrior on Twitter, aside from showing up at rallies, are you taking any of these men and women to detox? Are you taking any of these men and women into your backyard? That's what I always ask. And I have yet to meet a single one who does. So you start to realize, what it, why make all this noise? For what reason? It, it, and it, I sum it up to just virtue signaling. It's just really out of control. So I'm at this point right now, David, where I understand Seattle culture now. Uh, I've never seen anything like this before. Four years I've been in Seattle. And I have yet to see bridge building. And that's what I want to see it more of. I want to, I want, I'm not sure if it's even possible, but I want to see these folks on the left work with moderates to find actual solutions. Because the current plan isn't working right now. And I don't think, again, I always bring it back to the media. I don't think local media is helping either because the only narratives right now are just, you know, what's working, what's not. But, and where's the bridge building? That, that's what I want to see happen more often. And when you have politicians, it just happens to be the Democrats are the ones in power who, who don't want to talk to people with alternative solutions. Then 
that contributes to the problem as well. When you don't have lawmakers willing to listen to all the voices of their constituents. You know, to um, one of the co-hosts of Seattle Nice is Sandeep, who I consider a friend, and he talks on the show about how he used to have a problem with drug abuse and he was arrested and it was a wake up call and it arguably saved his life. And he's quite, I would say, uh, he's quite open to a variety of solutions that are so long as they're workable, but he does point that out. And of course he gets a lot of pushback for, for that, but I think it's self-evidently true. And it's definitely true if you know people who have been through that. You know, David, I want to just add to that point. I did a story last year. Um, it was probably one of the most powerful pieces I put together. It got, it went viral. It was a story about a, a young woman by the name of Kaylee Gordon. Uh, I met her two years ago on the streets uh, in West Seattle, living in the woods. Extremely talented young woman, you know, singer, songwriter, plays the guitar. Two years later, uh, I get a frantic call from, or rather just last year, uh, I get a frantic call from her family after she saw after they saw my interview with Kaylee on my YouTube channel, and they said Kaylee's missing. We don't know where she is. So we started this frantic search. I followed the family, you know, beginning, middle, and end, and we found Kaylee at the corner of Third and Pike, zonked out of her mind on meth, fentanyl, and she refused to go home with her family. So they had to essentially do an intervention. And I covered this entire process showing how the police compassionately worked with Kaylee, how outreach workers worked with parents and and eventually got her off the streets and home to Wyoming into detox. But then the fringe left and some bloggers in Seattle who will go unnamed came after me for saying that I shouldn't have shown all those raw realities. And they focused more on the rights of Kaylee, her free will choice to stay on the streets and do drugs being violated than the concerns of actually saving her life. And that is the tension that I see in this debate moving forward, that you have people who genuinely believe leaving Kaylee addicted to drugs on the street is the right thing to do and is more compassionate than intervening to save her life. And and that's the type of pushback and, and thinking that continues to infect Seattle. Wow, that's disgusting. It it almost seems to me like one way to think about this is almost as if you have a distinction between people who have kids, perhaps, and understand the phrase tough love, but it is love. And people who don't have kids and actually are kids themselves, they're just children and they don't, they're just narcissistic children and they, they're just out there yelling these phrases that are going to get people killed. But that's okay because at least they get to virtue signal. Make sure you tweet that. (laughs) (laughs) That'll that'll get uh, you some follow more followers and rile up a lot of folks on the left. (laughs) Um, Speaking of activists, okay, the Palestinian protests that we've seen recently, and they are alive and thriving in Seattle, as they are in many other parts of uh, the United States. I've seen some repulsive videos from the University of Washington and other places. I saw a video recently fascinating by Constantine Kissin in which people were, he was going around talking to people and so many of them, he would say, tell me what does that sign mean that you're holding? And the person would say, I, I don't know what that means. This was just handed to me by someone in a booth over there. They don't even know what they're saying, what they're chanting, what their signs mean. And it turns out that the people running the booth were socialists. And I thought this was interesting. What is going on here with the socialist hand in the in the pal in the pro Palestinian puppet that is sort of being that is sort of dancing around in front of us? What is what is this? What is how deep does the socialist rot run in America? I know that my experience in Seattle showed me the face of it a little bit. I had a lot of self described Leninists attacking me because I wrote a column about Lenin, calling me a Holocaust denier. This is what got me fired. These people lying about me. Um, I, I went to a bar and was thrown out of it when the bartender realized that I had, this was before I said anything on Twitter and I had just written a column about the statue of Lenin 
And he can, he told me that he was a communist. And then we were kicked out of the bar. I was like, I can't believe it's 2024. I just got kicked out of a bar for not being a communist. I, there was, I came out of the bookstore one day and there was a, a communist parade coming right down. This was outside Elliott uh, Book Company and they're coming right down the middle of the street. That makes they sense. Fled. It's Capitol Hill. <laughs> the my grandfather could see it. Activism and communism. <laughs> I just, I couldn't, my, if I was, I was relaying all of this to a, a friend of mine who's, who's from the old country, young guy, and now he lives in America. He came out to visit me in Seattle and I was telling him these things. And, you know, he's from a place where they have real communism, the kind of communism that kills people and ruined entire nations. And he just couldn't, he's like, come on. Come on, this isn't David. This is not. Uh, come on, you're joking. Like, and I'm like, no, no. I can take you right now and show you a 16 foot statue of Vladimir Lenin. I'm not kidding. I can show you people giving speeches in honor of Lenin. I can tell you about how someone in the newsroom told me that Lenin was their greatest hero, and that they and that what they found out that members of my family had been murdered by the communists. They looked me in the face and said, well, I think some of that was necessary in the Seattle Times newsroom to my face. <laughs> so I've come I've I've come to know something of the the communist the communist element in Seattle. I would love you to explain what you think is going on here with the communist element and the socialists and the Palestinian protests, because they do seem to be intertwined here. And I know that there's a history there with the Palestinian nationalism and, and socialism, but I've seen it in the U.S. I've seen it in protests, and also I've seen it with uh, Kissin's reporting in London, and it seems to be a global phenomenon. What's happening here? Yeah, um, you know, I agree with everything that you just laid out, and here on the front lines in Seattle, I've been covering, I've been one of the few journalists that's pretty much covered, you know, most of these quote-unquote pro-Palestine protests. Uh, that have now, you know, taken over downtown streets, shut down, you know, uh, you know, downtown highway, and now they're going to be targeting the Sound Transit, you know, link station uh, <laughs> this weekend. Initially, you saw the you saw a lot of Muslims out initially right after October seventh, uh, when Israel right after that how Israel declared war on Hamas, you, you saw a lot of people marching, you know, asking for a ceasefire. Uh, but then probably around the second or third protest, it wasn't just the Muslims or women wearing burqas or men and women wearing kafiyas. I started to observe the signs. And on these signs, you started to see groups like Answer Coalition, Socialist Alternative. Uh, you started to see groups that are openly Marxist or, or socialist or communist or associated or aligned with Seattle's far left protest network. And then the telltale sign was the vast majority of the people in the crowd were white. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, that's when I realized, oh, my gosh, we are living Black Lives Matter 2.0 all over again. Because I was here in 2020 when BLM started off as a social movement for black rights in America. But how Antifa and the far left and these white kids hijacked it and pushed every other agenda under the sun. Fast forward to 2023, now going to 2024, I started to see the same playbook. It was the same people who were there at BLM. I started to recognize the same men and women in the far-left Seattle protest network, and they were chanting the same things. And it has nothing to do about Palestine or Muslims at the end of the day. It's about these socialists, the Marxists, and the communists pushing their agenda taking advantage of more chaos in society and social strife. And that's how they flourish. That's how they play at the end of the day. And once again, mainstream local media is MIA and not picking up on this most important narrative. The goal of these folks, many of them anarchists, are to disrupt society, are to say and blame, like former Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant, who now is running socialist alternative who have placards and who have booths at these protests. Interestingly enough, David, as you, you know, picked up in other places here in Seattle, you have a booth being run by socialist alter, socialist alternative now uh, at these rallies in Seattle to recruit more members. It's a brilliant playbook. They go after disenfranchised youth, a lot of folks on the far left, and bring them on their side through these protests. That's what's fueling this right now, David. 
And on top of that, as we've outed recently, um, a lot of these folks are Seattle public school teachers. They're all part of this network to go I'm after the next generation. I'm not surprised. Um, this goes back to what I was saying about the the anti the police abolitionist movement in Oakland and it being predominantly white, but in the name of people of color, but not really just, you know, and there a lot of them, <clears throat> if you dig into their ideology a little bit and if they're willing to be frank with you or you can find them talking, frankly, amongst themselves online, you find that they're accelerationists. They're interested in the destruction of Western civilization to bring about a new utopian society. And I think if you had said this months ago, people would have kind of looked at you funny, but now you don't really have to make the argument because in the wake of October 7th, you've heard the decolonial arguments come out quite clearly anti-Western, anti-democracy, and, and particularly because all of this is affiliated with capitalism and so it all has to be turned down. But I would say that I, to a large degree, corporate media is MIA, but not entirely. There's for instance, with what happened to you or with what happened to me, you have corporate media not only condoning this with their silence, but taking part in it, like siding with these psychopaths, as opposed to, you know, MIA would be staying out of it entirely. And siding, taking action on the basis of these activists, uh, you know, making things up. That's really what's troubling. I'd like to maybe uh, finish our conversation by talking about the state of news media and American journalism today. I think it's, um, we're really in a unique moment in American history with regard to journalism. I think we see a sea change where a lot of Americans are starting to realize that corporate media doesn't have their interests at heart and they're turning to other sources of news for their information, independent sources, individual journalists, uh, outlets, uh, the free press, for instance, and others. Substack is flourishing for this reason because people don't know who to trust. You know, you can you can sort of get a vibe or a read on a particular journalist, and you can come to know and understand their views and decide whether or not you trust that journalist. But when it comes to a corporate entity, you don't always know what their agenda is. If you're if you're in the public, and if you're not a trained journalist, I find that a lot of my friends and family. Just reading an article can be a challenge, knowing how to suss out, well, wait, what information should I be fact-checking here? What should I be going and looking up? And this is assuming that people are going to go and look up anything when they read an article. As a journalist, I guess I assume that most people probably don't. So it's, it's uh, you know, we're all feeding off the, the fire hose of information right now. And it's scary, especially if you aren't a journalist and you don't have this type of training. You're just, you're just swimming in a sea of confusion. And um, I think what a lot of people do is they just cling on to a source, whether it's MSNBC or Fox News or whatever, and they just say, okay, this is it. I'm just going to go with this. It simplifies the work. That's not really what you want either. What do you think about all this? Well, I would uh, sum this up by saying it's one of the most, I guess, uncertain times in American journalism, at the same time, one of the most exciting times. Mm. Uh, I've been a, a corporate journalist for 20 plus years before you know, I linked up with Discovery Institute, and now they're backing my work as an independent journalist, where I can really go and take these deep dives. I'm no longer beholden to the, you know, one-minute news package or the live hit at 4, 5, and 6 and rinse, repeat. I can go more in-depth with my stories. With that said, it's it's unbelievable what's happening. I'm watching these uh, newsrooms just collapse, newspapers closing left and right, uh, the Everett Herald is about to be sold. You know, the Seattle Times losing circulation, reporters quitting. I'm seeing people go over to Amazon PR, uh, who used to be journalists. You know, all the reporters on TV I watched growing up uh, are no longer in the business. And on the flip side of that, I'm seeing the, the PR departments for these politicians now outgunning journalists uh, because they have so much staff now who, who understand how to spin the news. So with that said, I think uh, more than ever, social media, I and mean, I know that's uh, loaded now, a loaded term, and it's a double-edged sword, but platforms like X have really allowed the flow of information, uh, has really democratized everything, and has allowed independent journalists now to thrive. That's where I've been breaking the vast majority of my stories. At the same time, I'm uh, troubled by the fact that, go back to my journalism school, Boston University, I talked to my professor friends at Northwestern or you know, Missouri and Syracuse, and they're seeing a pipeline problem. They're basically saying, Cho, 
we aren't seeing as many kids going to journalism anymore because now they're seeing the money being made on YouTube and TikTok. It's almost like, why not just become an influencer right out of the gate instead of racking up a $100,000 debt in college with that journalism degree and then toiling away in the middle of nowhere market, making 15 bucks an hour and trying to work your way up to what? So you can be making these corporations more money so you can be stifled and not have a voice. So there really is a paradigm shift happening. And what I'm focusing now on is really trying to encourage and also empower uh, independent journalists to also think like entrepreneurs. More than ever, there are ways and platforms to fund your work, to crowdsource, to you know get people to back you certain stories. So that's what I'm excited about, and that's what I'm going to be focused on moving forward. Look, I feel like as an independent in Seattle, I'm filling the gap where mainstream media is failing. I mean, I show up to these stories now that I think are extremely important, and I'm looking around and nobody's there. You know, I went to a press conference last year with King County Executive Dow Constantine, and there were literally three journalists there. So even the press conferences are now changing, right? Even the politicians are starting to wake up, and they're starting to realize they have to create their own platforms and social media narratives in order to reach the public. So I feel like the it's it's started playing field starting to level. I feel like uh, you know the independents have more opportunities now, and um, you know I'm I'm never going back to corporate. That's very hopeful. It sounds like you're kind of a pessimist for a certain certain way in which general journalism has been practiced, but you're very much optimistic about the future of journalism in its new form. Yeah, you know, I was listening to this story, interestingly enough, on NPR. You know, uh, I don't always subscribe to their coverage, but they always have interesting guests, and I try to listen to different perspectives, and I draw from various news sources still on the left, right, middle, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, you're a newspaper guy. Back in the day, I'd say just even a decade ago, you had the Seattle Times, New York Times, Washington Post, you know, ABC, NBC, you know, CBS, and so forth, being known as the gatekeepers. Uh, they determined what was important based on the front flap of a newspaper or the lead story. Now, it's the algorithm that determines what is the most important story or what news story you get fed off your iPhone or off a tablet. So the way Americans consume now is changing everything. And I think journalists now need to also, you know, I'm not saying, you know, change the way they gather news stories and journalistic integrity uh, and, and focus on certain stories. But I think that needs to be considered as well. What will get eyeballs? What will get traction? Because that's the reality. More so than ever, this is, I would argue, the most, this is the most information-saturated generation in history. Right. So it's no longer an information problem. It's about how do you get your voice heard, you know, in this wild west right now that we're seeing when it comes to American journalism. I think a lot of people, including myself, who make the transition, that is the, that is the hard part is the marketing is the just, you know, I'll be honest, when I first moved over to Substack and I've read interviews with other journalists expressing somewhat similar feelings that the marketing feels slimy. Like, oh, I'm a journalist. I'm not supposed to be selling myself and I'm not supposed to be pushing. I don't want to put out a like a post that's saying, hey, everyone, like trying to get people to switch over to paid subscription. Fortunately, I'm married to a businesswoman who uh, slaps some sense into me whenever I have those thoughts. And she's like, what are you talking about? Do, do you want to do this? Well, then you have to market yourself. It's silly, really. It's ridiculous. But it's um, something that we pick up uh, along the way. I think a lot of journalists have this type of thinking. And David, it's David, uh, that's a great point. I kind of had that crisis of conscience as well after I left, you know, mainstream corporate media a couple of years ago, because I realized I'd be going down a path of the unknown. I've never gone down where I've had to support myself and my work and figure out how to fundraise and ask donors. Uh, but if you look at even, you know, mainstream media you look at seattle times now that a lot of they're losing subscribers you know as we know craigslist decimated the the classifieds where they derive you know where the times and other newspapers derive most of their ads to fund the journalism so now now you have people like you know folks at the seattle times looking to corporate donors so you know npr also you always hear about those campaigns now they're starting to say we're going to reduce those you know giving campaigns and focus more on donations so in other words, I think we're just not only seeing the sea change in platforms and the way we consume news, we're also going to see and are seeing a sea change in the way journalism is funded. Uh, in fact, you know, I sat down with a private equity group uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, and they made a prescient call. They said, Jonathan, we're no longer going to be funding actual journalism organizations. 
we're going to be funding personality-driven journalists. What they were saying at the time leading up, and this was a conservative you know, group that was funding, what they were saying is leading up to 2024, uh, we do see so much clutter out there. So what's going to kind of rise to the top are the influencers, the journalists who have a voice, who know how to market themselves, who now know how to fo- uh, you know, function as hybrid journalists, journalists who will not only be able to gather and write and tell a fair and accurate story with the five W's, but ones who know how to also, you know, give a little analysis and maybe even their opinion at times. So I've had to really change and shift my thinking to accommodate the, the changing realities of American journalism. So uh, I, I and it's already coming to fruition. It's a brave new world. Very exciting times to be a journalist. 